and welcome to episode 53 of the figure podcast each episode we figure out people numbers and images of the past present and future i have just come from a yoga class which was good to kind of I, you know what i'm not even going to say calm my mind i was very much like still focusing on all the things i need to do today during the yoga class which annoyed me and at the same time i was like no be nice to yourself just keep mm. focusing on your breathing keep on moving was one of those where I was wasn't really in the zone but I was still really enjoying it um and I actually wanted to recommend the yoga teacher who's called Sally Williams and we will put the link um to her website in the show notes um I would also recommend Zephyr Wildman both of them are doing zoom classes and I guess that's one of the benefits of being able to have these zoom yoga things which I definitely don't like anywhere near as much as going in person but it does mean that I can have classes with people who I live very, very far away from. What are your favorite fitness things or yoga things? Have you got any recommendations on that front? I've been doing yoga on, so I have my yoga teacher, Lucy, and she does her own private classes, which I'll link as well. Let's go on to some podcast recommendations. So um, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, Do you remember Trini and Susanna, Shah? Yes. Okay. So I love Trini and Susanna. Uh, Trini has a fantastic makeup line and um, I use her brand her brand I guess yes cosmetics every day Trini London she also has a fantastic Instagram if you want to feel good just go and watch Trini try on some outfits and do her makeup and just she does loads of chats and she's just really fun love Trini so Susanna has her own podcast called wardrobe malfunctions which is hilarious many great episodes on there but I also heard a really good interview with her on women's hour earlier this month about alcoholism and she decided to talk about her journey through this after the reports came out about people drinking more in lockdown last year especially women she really Um, talked she really wants to hammer home that you know an alcoholic or someone who relies on alcohol isn't someone necessarily on a park bench with a bottle in a brown bag it can be someone who really is depending on it but seemingly has a very perfect life or privileged life or whatever another Um, theme of kind of female topic which was fka twigs on louis theroux she she had a really great interview and there was sort of the first bit was talking about her music and it was really interesting to hear about sort of creative process and collaboration then louis theroux says you know the next part of the interview after she had filed a lawsuit against her ex-boyfriend Shia LaBeouf who had been manipulating her and emotionally coercively controlling her for 18 months or so during their relationship and she talks you through the entire process and he very much questions her about you know how did you why did you not leave why did you not seek help how did you seek help eventually and it's just fascinating I think you rarely hear that side of the story in such detail. Um, and obviously Louis through just asked the questions that you want to ask. That sounds really interesting and really mm. new. I don't think I've ever heard a conversation in depth about that process. Mm. On a similar note, I guess, to Louis through, I don't know why I put them in the same box, but I do. David Tennant's podcast. I think yeah. because they ask very good similar questions. And They're a then, similar vibe. They're a similar yeah, vibe. I'm in, if yeah. I'm in that mood, I will go for David Tennant or Louis Theroux. It's like a... Yeah, comforting. Yes. But also kind of insightful, 
and stimulating. And, and I had heard an interview with Kush Jumbo, who's an actress. She was on How to Fail and she had a fantastic episode of that. Her episode with David Tennant is equally hilarious, really interesting from a different perspective of actor life and like how you get into it or your rituals are saying goodbye to a character that you've been like representing for years and years um so this was in reference to the good wife and it was just so interesting I haven't even seen things that she's in but I just love listening to interviews with her I have a major recommendation on sex in the city for You've got to be a pretty big super fan to get this podcast. Yes. I think anyone who is a kind of casual watcher of Sex and the City and doesn't really know the characters in depth is going to, this is going to go over your head because it is the most like analytical English mm-hmm. graduate analysis of Sex and the City. We need to have a separate section where we analyze their analysis, Shah, because honestly we could go, we could talk about this for this whole recommendation section. We could, I agree. But I think we should do it when the next Sex and the City um, season comes out. I also, normally when I see podcasts that are almost two hours long, I kind of go, oh my God, why? Why is it this long? And do then you I see started, why it works? Yes, but I started listening to it and I could not turn it off. I kept on getting annoyed at my mum who was asking me questions because I had to pause my podcast. And I just absolutely loved it. There's, they do one se- one episode per season. So there'll be six in total and then I think they're deciding whether they do both films or miss out the last film because they really didn't like it (laughs) I've got Um, one more podcast recommendation before oh yeah go for it okay so I've been withholding this because I want to tell you about it on the podcast and it is phone a friend with George Ezra and Ollie MN I think I don't know how to say a second name but that's how it's, it's like I don't know abbreviated have you heard of this before no Okay, so they started it in December 2019. So it's been going for about a year and a bit. So most of it has been in lockdown. Um, But they basically, Ollie lives in in Barcelona. George lives in UK or he's touring around and going to the US and doing his music stuff. Um, And it's just the chemistry between these friends is so infectiously happy and joyful. And at the same time, really really deep on mental health issues and how they're feeling about certain things or what they would recommend to other people and the it really basically sums up the roller coaster of mental health and I just find it very very helpful to listen to regardless of your own experience of mental health actually it's just a great lovely comforting chat that's very funny and you'll love this you know how you you like the Tudors as well don't you yes so George Ezra is obsessed with the Tudors <laughs> and they have this email um, jingle so that when they read out an email they have um, a Tudor style jingle oh my god do they have like green sleeves or like a handle no, it's like, piece it's like news from the east sire and then it's like all these little <laughs> violin oh my I don't god know that is how I would announce news if I could choose how to announce news it's brilliant you're gonna love it um but I also wanted to ask so in that one of their early episodes the first one they listened to is um shout out to my ex in brackets therapist and it's telling a story about how Ollie bumped into his his ex therapist who he Gosh. basically ghosted oh my god I bet that happens to so many people so funny um but he asked a couple of questions to kind of 
explore their friendship and I thought I would ask you the same questions sort of as a little mini test I guess but quite fun oh and God. one you can't fail okay. I'm stressing sweating sweating <laughs> okay let's do okay. it question one when is my birthday 6th October excellent if I were in Hogwarts which house would I be in oh okay can I answer honestly yes okay I feel like don't say Hufflepuff. Hufflepuff. You, would, you would want to be in Gryffindor but you're actually in Ravenclaw I think you're probably right yeah. <laughs> uh, as long as you didn't say not that Ravenclaw is a bad house but I just think everyone wants to be in Gryffindor because that's the Harry Potter house obviously actually so many Harry Potter fans are gonna kill me saying that not everyone wants to be in Gryffindor everyone wants to be in the house that they want to be in true Ravenclaw would be fun you know I could be friends with Cho Chang although she doesn't come across that fun I think there are many more Ravenclaw people than her so I think you'll be fine yeah Terry Boot I think but you're an extremely Ravenclaw Ravenclaw personality like there's there's just no way that you would fit another house as perfectly because aren't Ravenclaws like super organized like very smart um like they're always very like together and Mm. yeah Exactly. Thanks. Absolutely. I'll take it as a compliment. I also love blue. Exactly. No, precisely. <laughs> okay. Precisely. Next question. Which emoji best represents me? I feel like your slightly tipsy alter ego when hitting the dance floor is encapsulated perfectly by the red dancing lady. Oh, thank you. That's I literally love that what emoji. You, that's literally what you look like. Yeah. Or that's what I think I look like, and in reality, I look more wavy than that, and less. No, you ever. look like that. It's just the thing with you is, is you do look like that, but it's just very high speed. So it's as if you're watching someone dance, but you you like fast forwarded it. But actually, that's your pace. <laughs> Brilliant! I love it. Uh, that's funny because I was actually I was thinking of the reverse of what I would say for you. And the the red dancer emoji also came to my mind for you. Nice. Just, you just like just it. funky and like fun. And also you love that emoji. I do love that emoji. I also yeah. think the red rose is very beautiful. And I remember we've had a long conversation about how beautiful that emoji is. And, and your birthday is on the 17th of August. Mm-hmm. And your Hogwarts house I think you probably would be Gryffindor but I think we would be we would be friends yeah you could be friends outside your house can't you yeah just doesn't I'd be dating I'd be dating Cedric so obviously I'd be friends with people outside my house (laughs) (laughs) there's one more thing that we should talk about very quickly because we said that we were going to talk about it on the last episode and that is Lupin on Netflix I'm saying that in a French his his voice Kind of. It's not a very good impression, but you know what I mean. People are calling it Lupin, and it's like, no, we're not on Harry Potter, and it's also it's French. It is it basically is so good that it has changed my uh, res- reluctance to watch films in French, and I think and TV series as well. And I think my reasoning for that is that normally when I'm watching something, if I'm taking the time to do that, I just want to switch off completely. I don't want to have to concentrate. And if I'm watching something in French, then I'm also kind of trying to challenge myself to remember my French. And it's all a bit like quite intense and cerebral. But 
this show is so clever and is so interesting and completely gripping. The acting is phenomenal. And yeah, it's just like a cross between James Bond and Sherlock Holmes, but without the misogyny that you get in uh, James Bond. Speaking of misogyny, um, I watched the Britney documentary called Free Britney, I think. Fascinating on how we as a society have put young, young, young women on a pedestal, but yet torn into their lives. And you see that with, you know, it got me thinking about Princess Diana, it got me thinking about Lindsay Lohan, Kate Moss, um, you know, Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift. I mean, reporters would ask Britney, like, is she a are you a virgin? It's like, how is that okay to ask someone? <laughs> like ever. Um, and obviously it, it sort of takes you through the sort of early period of her life and how she became so famous. And basically the main arc of the documentary is exploring this conservatorship that she's under. Um, she's controlled by her father. So everything's controlled by her father. And my theory, um, and also explored in the documentary is she did that, uh, she agreed to do that for custody. It takes you through how crazy her life was when she gave birth and had kids and how the press made her out to be like a terrible mother, an unstable person, blah, blah, blah. And then when she got divorced, they had a, this very bitter custody battle. And I think she agreed to it to get custody. And then as soon as she agreed to it, she was allowed to see her sons. So I feel like that's where why it happened. But this documentary is really, really interesting. I recommend watching it. Um, also, a friend of mine recommended a podcast called Spinning Plates by Sophie Ellis Baxter, and he recommended it to me a while ago. And I listened to like half an episode, got distracted, then rediscovered it. Sophie Ellis Baxter has five children, and she basically is talking about what life is like as a working mum and interviews all these guests who are also working mums and how they um, And it's just really encouraging and positive. Uh, I would really recommend it I also have loved Jessie Cave's podcast called we can't talk about this right now um, she does it with her sister it's so good I love it they Shah, you'll find this hilarious from a podcast point of view because they don't have a structure or a theme they just talk um and the title quite hard, you know George Ezra does the same thing with Ollie and I'm really impressed at how it is really compelling and then it's an episode on Happy Place with Priyanka Chopra Jonas. She's uh, brought out a new book and she's talking about how she's found success in her life. And right from like the tiny, tiny little like how to find motivation in a day that you think is going to be rubbish to how you manage multiple like contracts and running your own business. Really interesting. The first figure that we're going to talk about today is Alexei Navalny, who is a lawyer, investigative journalist, online anti-corruption activist, and I guess YouTuber and politician. He stood for mayor of Moscow in 2013, and he got 27% of the votes, which is no mean feat. And he's kind of become a symbol of the anti-Putin, like other side of that political scale in Russia. And what I think is so interesting about him is that 
his supporters don't necessarily agree with his policies, some of which are very nationalist and controversial, especially around immigration, but they see what he's had done to him and what he's standing for, and they believe in that. So it's like he's bigger than himself as an individual person. I think that's what I find most interesting about him. Oh, he's totally bigger than himself. And I think the fact that he, you know, on January 17th this year, landed in Russia, crossed the border, and literally gave, is, you know, was will is willing to give his life for this cause makes him a different, just in a different category than any other opposition that we've seen. Um, yeah. I think he's had, he has very nationalist views. Um, so a lot of sort of the liberal population in Russia don't necessarily agree with some of his policies, but they actually, you know, will come behind him and mass protest um, his arrest, which has been so interesting thinking about the last couple of months and then thinking about how the West have responded. Um, also really interesting I guess we should add some context there for anybody who has not been um keeping up to date on this which actually was me until we decided to do this podcast I mean this isn't anything new we've had opposition to dictators throughout time but it is interesting thinking about Putin and thinking about some of the things that he does so blatantly like Skripal we covered a couple of years ago um like the annexation of Crimea and Ukraine and yet we don't doesn't seem like the West is doing enough, in my opinion. Well, the whole thing feels like we're in some kind of weird dystopian book, because in what world do we have a specific poison, Novichok, which is made mm. and manufactured by the Russian government, being administered to citizens who are not being violent, who are literally just mm. standing up and, and just making their voice heard, especially on behalf of all the other people who, who are contacting them, that this corruption is not okay. And Absolutely. that's the context that we need to kind of fill people in on, is that um, last August, Alexei Navalny was boarding a flight um, and he kind of collapsed and was wailing in pain and enduring the flight and they did an emergency landing. And it turned. he was then taken to Berlin Hospital eventually where they discovered that he'd been poisoned by Novichok. Mm. This had gone, it had been put into his underwear. And that mm. that is like weird. It's like, how did they, how did they manage to do that? It's so crazy. At one point they well, thought it was in the tea that he drank just before boarding. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then he was in a coma. So he was completely unable to make any of these decisions of where he was going to go. And then he spent the next three months recovering and now he's come back to Russia, which was the country that did this to him. And it's just mm -hmm. extraordinary that he has committed to this course of action so much that that is how willing he is to put himself in the firing line. Definitely. Um, and I think, the, you know, the way that they got it into his underpants was that he was actually shadowed by FSB agents for years uh, leading up to this sort of very much on the radar of the Putin regime in 2011, where he called for protests after there had been very clear fraudulent elections in Russia. Bearing in mind, Putin has been in power now for 21 years or something. Um, and even at that time in the early kind of 2010s, Putin's approval ratings among young people was very high. Mm. Um, and Navalny was kind of still not really finding as much momentum, certainly as he has now. 
Um, and I think that's also because Russia was doing well at the time, which is what I sort of found out in my research in 2014. And younger citizens in Russia had grown up with Putin as the leader and were very used to it. And there wasn't any problem, it wasn't really a, a, a problem that they could point at and say, okay, actually, yeah, okay, so he might be a dodgy guy, but actually the quality of life is good. And actually the quality of life for the average Russian has gotten worse since the early 2010s. And Navalny's following has been growing and he's been forming these networks of opposition all throughout Russia, all through the different time zones. When like Skripal was poisoned, for example, I guess that was a really high profile case. But what he'll do is he'll put out these very extensively researched cases in form of YouTube videos explaining what Putin and a lot of the uh, Russian authorities are doing by stealing money from the people through tax and tax evasion and using it either abroad or to fund their own personal lifestyles um, as well as having these fraudulent elections. When he was poisoned was initially taken to a Russian hospital where he was saved by Russian physicians and in my research I found out that his wife appealed to Putin and asked if he could be airlifted to Berlin kind of a medical evacuation she posed it directly to Putin and if he had said no then it would have looked extremely obvious that Putin was trying to kill him and actually Putin wants to keep several layers in between himself and the FSB agents that are actually going to potentially murder him so that's how he got to Berlin because I thought I was like how did they get did they literally just like cross the border overnight or something um that's really and, interesting. But then mm. that also, surely that plays into when he landed um, in back in Russia again in January, he was immediately arrested. Mm-hmm. They also, I, what I love that they, I kind of find this whole thing, it's like, a, again, a plot twist in a novel. They had all told, hit, like he was supposed to be going into one airport. And so they had all the journalists and supporters mm-hmm. and activists all there. Then they diverted it because of a blocked snow plow. That was yeah. the reason that they gave. Yeah. They couldn't land at one airport. So they did it you know a different airport an hour away so that he didn't have that audience to land to and then Mm. they arrested him because he had supposedly uh broken the terms of his bail from when he was previously in jail by going to berlin which he did in a coma and then obviously i didn't realize that that they had actually Mm. asked permission for this to happen so i mean we all know that the hit that it does i don't have a leg to stand on no, and they and they and they talked. The prosecutor said that to the judge. You know, said that you know my client was in a coma and couldn't meet his parole. Um, and the charges that they had, you know, on this previous conviction, I think was like trumped up fraud, which was very kind of. I mean, Putin's been trying to kind of get rid of him for a long time. So the theory is that these sorts of charges were actually quite nondescript. And another uh, allegation that he had against him for that um, jail sentence was being kind of anti some sort of discriminatory comment about a war hero um yes he didn't I feel like what he what he commented on was the Russian government using this war hero to speak out against Navalny Navalny then retorts and says don't use this old guy as political fodder but then they sort of accused him of being anti-veteran and interestingly did you hear this bit about they got that guy to then um, give a, what's it called? A, put him on the stand at Navalny's trial in early February, 
of this year to sort of speak out about Navalny and why he's terrible for the opposite, you know, for Putin's regime and all this sort of thing. And this guy is on video, he's 95 years old. They get him into the court, they question him for three hours about how terrible Navalny is. And Navalny literally says in the court, if this man dies of heart attack, it's on your head because you're completely stressing him out and interrogating him. And then the guy gets, you know, gets kind of flustered and ill and there's an ambulance that's called um, and he has to like leave the trial. Oh my which God. Which is insane. Um, <laughs> wow. So, so that's what he was convicted of in this trial that happened, I think it was the 6th of February. And they've now sentenced him to two and a half years in a prison colony, which will be kind of in a remote area of Russia there were, you know it's very cold there are loads of diseases that over there like god knows what's going to happen to him he made it very clear in the speech that he gave during the trial about his opposition to putin and kind of a call to arms to everybody to keep protesting and then i think it's i can't remember where he said it might have been in the trial but he said like if i commit suicide if i commit suicide air quotes i didn't and they're lying <laughs> like he must not not be afraid of death like he must, I'm just thinking about this. It's like, how, how do you have the nerve to, they could literally talk, they could do anything they want to him now, but maybe he's become so high profile that they know if they do that, yeah. expose themselves. Which is why I think this recent stuff around Amnesty International and going after his, they've basically gone after his reputation. They've tried to go after him physically and wipe him out, which hasn't worked which must have driven them absolutely mad. It's very embarrassing to try and poison somebody just before a flight so that you know that they can't get to a hospital and then they survive and then they come back to the country. It's not looking good for you if you if that's like a botched thing, isn't it? Um, but yeah, with, with so Amnesty International have said that Navalny can no longer be called a prisoner of conscience, but well, only one in five people agree with this statement. And the reason that they say that he can't have this status is because he's been accused of promoting violence and hate speech. And that goes back to the immigration things that we were talking about. And I think the anti-veteran, anti-veteran quote unquote, is also in there. But I think it's, I think that they've been manipulated and that's what has come out more recently. And I think it's incredibly clever to go after that side of him because that is one of Navalny's strengths is his online reputation and so they're now trying to damage that as a way of sort of making him lose support mm. which is definitely working to a certain extent except when they then get accused of manipulating huge organizations absolutely and you know what happened when when he was in jail was his team um released the case about the black sea palace which was this palace that was built with a golden toilet and then two aqua discos or whatever I know, um, aqua discos what on earth i know i know and it sounds really fun it does but... sound fun exactly and it was it was built for putin um it's overlooking the georgian sea i believe but one of his top oligarchs or whatever had to come out say that it's his palace and not Putin's because obviously to try and discredit the Navalny case so clearly he's being disruptive and a threat to them even behind bars who knows how many videos he's got saved or that he's you know his team might be making content while he's away so <laughs> they were trying to look for evidence to prove definitively that the FSB were responsible for this poisoning and they, he has been shadowed by a team of agents for many years 
and a list of these potential suspects was released to Navalny's lawyer and they called every single one of them apparently and they all either hung up or denied it apart from the last one where he called impersonating a senior aide um, and the guy basically admitted to it did you hear that recording yeah and it's recorded it honestly it is like the most thrilling tv series or book that you've ever read it's unbelievable i know i know it's so crazy the other things i wanted to say just before we wrap up is that i what i also find very interesting in his story is the tipping point of when he became enough of a threat for them Mm -hmm. to try and assassinate him because the daily is very interesting on this They were saying that initially they didn't really do anything to stop him because they weren't taking it that seriously, but also they wanted to give the illusion of democracy. So if they allowed people to speak out against him, then they were saying, well, look, we have free speech. This is what's going on. We have this Mm -hmm. person. But then it all got to a head and then it's really ramped up since that poisoning, of course. And then the other thing that I think is interesting is this translation of online support into in-person support, because that was the real question, which they explored in Today in Focus. There were two very good episodes on that podcast, the Guardian podcast, um, where the question was, are these people who are liking his YouTube videos and watching his YouTube videos actually going to come out onto the streets, risk their own health and safety in order to protest against corruption in Russia. Yeah, and they've had 5,000 protesters arrested and kept in cold buses. They've got bus loads that they can't put in jail so they don't have space for them. So they're just being kept in these buses and they're kind of not being given proper food, water, uh, you know, heat, heating. Um, and again, further dampening Putin's reputation. And I think on that episode, they have been, they played a few memes that have been going around TikTok about Putin um, making fun of him, which is which is new. That hasn't that hasn't circulated as much as it is now. And got, the Russian government are really trying to crack down on it. And apparently, they do want to have a more Chinese style of kind of control of information. To protect- the next figure for this episode is that there were 263 artifacts found at Sutton Hoo. Now Sutton Hoo is the burial ground, an early medieval burial ground that was discovered just before World War II and it's located in Suffolk near Woodbridge. Actually, what it is is a 27 meter ship with a burial chamber in the middle of it, um, including artifacts that had never been seen before including items from India the Byzantine Empire and it was just this look into the 7th century which was also known as the Dark Ages and a lot of historians weren't really sure about that period of history but I do want to open with a fun fact now you might be wondering like I am why it's called Sutton Who and the answer is it's just old medieval English and Sutton means like South England settlement settlement farms whatever and then who is hill or mound um and other names of places that have this very kind of old English phraseology includes do you remember the Plymouth Hoe yes yeah, so Plymouth Hoe means is the same. So Hoe is hill, which it is. So you go up that hill and the beach is there. Ah, there are so many jokes that are made about that. 
But yeah, but do you know what's even worse? Is there's a place in Essex called Fingering Ho. <laughs> I'm not joking. I mean, I want to talk about it because I thought that the Netflix film, I feel like everything comes back to Netflix at the moment, but that is most people's lives in UK lockdown who have a it subscription, um, which is a lot of people. So The Dig came out um, a few weeks ago and it's based on a novel by John Preston. It features Ray Fiennes as Basil Brown, Basil. who's yep. the man who excavated um, the first three mounds, I think it was. Um, and it has Carrie Mulligan as, as Edith Pretty, who mm-hmm. is the owner of Sudden Who. And she bought the house with her husband who died. Um, he was a war veteran. And I think one of the reasons that they wanted to buy this place was because of these mounds, but then they never did anything about it until much later in her life. And I found it, I just kind of quite like historical films like that that can show you a different side of something bring out the characters um that were involved and lots of the characters are very much like true to how they were um Mm -hmm. but then also look at the the things that were made up or the things that were exaggerated or left out um so I wanted to do a little rundown of that for anybody who's seen the film and is wondering how accurate it is um starting with the fact that Carrie Mulligan is about 20 years too young to be Edith Pretty. She was in her 50s by the time this, like she asked um, Basil Brown to excavate. Yes, she was about 50. 50. And an interesting fact about her, she had her son when she was 47, which is extremely late. Um, And her husband had like proposed to her, I think something like every day since she was, every year since she was 18, but she didn't marry him until she was, probably like 40 or and I think one of the reasons is because she was looking after her own father which yeah. really shows the um how women went from like fathers to husbands uh still symbolized by the whole aisle thing in the wedding <laughs> well I suppose as well it just shows that she I guess cared a lot about him oh of course prior- absolutely prioritized him over her own life yeah um, so other things that were true I mean lots of it was really true and there's a great article that was written by Roberta Gilchrist and it's on the kind of refreshingly accurate portrayal of archaeology in the dig because it's not it is romanticized and it is very much sped up like I think that you know the hours and hours and hours of nothing would be really quite uh tedious and it's not why I would ever want to go into archaeology myself but I enjoy looking at it and watching a two-hour version of what was <laughs> like a huge long days and days and days of working in the sun and going through lots of mud. Um, but what she thought was very good is that they talked about some of the themes like the moral issues of this as a burial ground. So you're essentially digging up someone's grave, like what are the problems around that? And then why is it archaeology important and the memory aspects and the history and the learning about humanity and so all of that which was much more subtle and it's not like an indiana jones representation of kind of digging things up and having like huge loads of treasure like i just i think that that was really well done um the acting is fantastic and then the characters so basil brown he was the key excavator initially Edith Pretty also had an interest in archaeology before this all happened. Um, her son, Robert Pretty, who's played by Archie Barnes, who's going to go on to be a huge, amazing mm. actor. He was so good. 
Um, I think that he was involved in it as well. And then Peggy Piggott, she was also real real life character. She's played by Lily James in the film. What was not right was that there wasn't this um, romance between her and the cousin of Edith Pretty, who's Rory Lomax. Um, and the also very dramatic scene, which I don't think is giving too much away, but there's one where Basil Brown is almost buried alive and that didn't happen in reality. Oh, yeah, that scene, because that's really early on as well, and you're just like, whoa, oh, God. It's, it's very yeah. Um, no, it's, it's, it's a really interesting um, kind of part of history, and just touching on what you said about the burial ground. So the context of the time that we're talking about, it was sort of just at the end of the Roman Empire, which was the end of the fifth century. Um, and so that's why there's such little known about what was going on because the Romans kept excellent records and then as they left, that was less uh, prevalent. Um, so what England consisted of at the time was lots of settlements and collections of kingdoms. So they actually don't know which king this belonged to, but they think it's most likely Redwood, Redwald, um, who was king from 610 to 635 they don't know if it was just his grave or a collection of graves and they also this king was sort of had a pre-christian a sort of pre-christian altar and so a sort of pagan style of worship and then a christian style of worship because this is when britain was being christianized it took about 150 years for it to be uh, to adopt Christianity fully and I think that they say that this king hedged his bets a lot which is why all of the uh, kind of instruments and things that were found in the graves were a mixture of sort of Christian symbolism um, and the pagan symbolism as well as being from different parts of the empire and what I also didn't realize about East Anglia was it was this port internationally to Scandinavia and to Europe because there were so many rivers um, that made up East Anglia, as we know, it's a very watery place. And so that made so much sense that boats could come in and out of it very, very easily. But obviously now we just sort of think of Dover as the, the port into Europe because of the tunnel, but obviously they didn't have that back then. Um, and Dover was part of a different you know, kingdom. Mm. So I found all of that really interesting as a sort of con, the context behind behind it because once those kingdoms became Christian that's when they abandoned Sutton or they think they abandoned Sutton as a burial ground for kings and then it became a place of execution because there are so many different mounds there's actually loads of different burial sites but the main ship uh, was the one for the king Redwald which is what they believe and then it became Redwald's sons and then apparently by the end of the seventh century so the early 700s then it became an execution ground. That's so interesting. I love like having a seed of something in something that you watch and it's entertainment, but there's an education value in it. And then you go off and you start searching and you find out more about it. I just really enjoy uh, that process. Mm. And I have some fun facts to finish with. Um, one of them is that the items that were found were kept in Aldwych and Holborn tube stations during the war to keep them safe. Oh, that is a good fun fact. 
It is a good fun fact. And I think the other one is related to the film again, that they they make it seem that they started with one mound, it didn't really work, and then they go to the second one, and then that's the huge one where they find the ship and all of these items, um, or lots of these items. But in actual fact, it was there were several that they did before they got to the kind of jackpot one. Um, and I think that the the line that I thought was very interesting, which came from Charles Phillips, who's the uh, official kind of British archaeologist who describes Basil Brown as like an amateur and is quite demeaning. I think their relationship in reality was a lot more civil than it is portrayed in the film. But he has this line which says the Dark Ages are no longer dark. And that's in reference to the coins that they found and these items and that I think it's amazing that you can find certain items that are from that long ago and it changes your entire perception of history in that period of time because of what you've discovered. Just find that mind-blowing. It's amazing. Absolutely. It's actually reminding me that I did say to my dad once that I wanted to become an archaeologist because I loved history so much and I was like such a nerd and I watched this documentary about Pompeii and all these archaeologists that that found all these artifacts from Vesuvius eruption and I just thought yes that is what I want to do <laughs> is dig up artifacts um because it's so interesting because it paints a picture of history the third uh, image that we are going to look at is related to sex scenes in films and tv series and the one that I think we're going to put on our instagram is of uh related to titanic and when is it Rose or Jack puts their hand on the it's car? Rose in the steamy car. With steamy the, car yeah. and it comes and it leaves the imprint. And then that's like their evidence that they've left this behind when they're being chased. Uh, and actually part of the reason, I mean, first of all, that is a fantastic sex scene. Second of all, it's the first sex scene that I think I ever saw. And so that's my first question to you. What was your first sex scene that you can remember seeing? What I like about Rose in Titanic is that she plays a much more active part than we often see in sex scenes, especially from that time. And that she's actually the one who asks Jack to draw her. She's the one who says that line, which everything becomes a cliche in Titanic, but put your hands on me. Like she's asking him to do that. I think that's actually quite oh, a good, yeah, clear that's thing. True. Yes, that's true. She's like hitting on him a lot, isn't she? But then that's also a class imbalance too, I think. True, but I like it. You know, there's gender, there's class, there's beautiful people, there's steamy cars. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> that constant balance as is life, just as and flows. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yay. Scene from Troy with Brad Pitt. I don't know if you've seen that. But I do remember watching that and thinking, oh, my gosh. Interesting. I didn't watch Troy until I was much older. It, would that be in Achilles and Bryce's then? Yeah, it was very inappropriate for our age. Don't know why we were watching it. Interesting. I think the Titanic was probably the equivalent because I was in year four, which would make yeah. me about eight. Yeah, I was about seven or eight. And then the next sex scene that I can remember watching, which again, both Titanic and Shakespeare in Love are 15s. And I watched them when I was very much younger than 15. <laughs> Um, I think that sex scene is also fantastic with Joseph Fiennes and Gwyneth Paltrow when she is uh, pretending to be a boy and she is like being spun out of her binding gar garment. And it's just really, they're like, they're both very 
new experiences it's like very obvious that this is the first time for the woman but I think that as sexual scene exposure goes for like someone young I'm quite glad that those were my two first things I saw because they're actually very tender there's like there's sort of not consent blurry boundaries on either of them they're Mm. very beautifully done and yeah I just I I like them but what are your other favorite sex scenes and then we will go on to talk about intimacy coordinators which was um what we wanted to highlight as part of this podcast in the handmaid's tale between offred and nick very (laughs) very central it's like very it's like that it's a forbidden thing like they're not supposed to be seeing each other obviously they both could get definitely get killed if they're caught um high stakes <laughs> super high stakes maybe that's why it makes it very good but the like that just how it's shot is it's just it's just beautiful it just it looks beautiful um and it's shot from her perspective <laughs> but there's also a difference between a sex scene that's like actually watching everything from start to finish which is what we're going to be talking about i suppose in bridgerton normal people or there's the sex scene that sort of starts implied and then after. And I think the start implied after is probably more what you're exposed to when you're younger. That's not very realistic. So many sex scenes, they have after and they literally have like a perfect, they all both have like a perfect sheet like around them with like perfect hair, no other clothes anywhere. And I'm like, no, that is not how it works. <laughs> You don't just appear that way afterwards. But that's definitely- what would you say are the most realistic sex scenes that you've seen then? Which I imagine all of them will be more recent and probably with intimacy yeah. coordinators. Yes, probably yeah. normal people. And I think like the fumbly scenes, which are almost make it more beautiful. Like it's it's imperfectly perfect. That's what I really love about normal people. And mm-hmm. what I find really interesting, I've listened to lots of interviews with um intimacy coordinators who are for anybody who hasn't heard of this term before, they are the equivalent of a dance choreographer or a stage fight or stunt coordinator for intimate scenes. And that can be for anything from a kiss to a full-on sex scene. Um, And they are there to make sure that there is open communication, that there are very important conversations that happen between everybody beforehand so that everyone knows already what the boundaries are for each individual actor and that they aren't crossed and that everyone feels comfortable and that they have been given some guidance and that they are allowed to act this in a way and it's being taken seriously in a professional manner and it's not blurring into personal because I think that this Mm. is previously what was very problematic that because so many people feel very awkward around sex, especially when you've got like cameras in your face and everything. I can't even imagine trying to do these scenes. I'm really amazed that they they managed to kind of capture something that looks so real when it is a, a performance. Um, but mm. directors would say, you know, so we've seen doing this scene tomorrow. Why don't you guys go out to dinner tonight to like get to know each other? And that's just such a, that's that's not the right attitude to have at all and or people would say oh go and um just work this out together like go and run the lines and see what you guys want to do and then that would mean that there is not a third party present so immediately the personal and professional have been blurred and Mm. that is the role of the intimacy coordinator Mm. no for sure and I was thinking about this like why is it important that sex scenes are done well people are seeing them impressionable people are seeing them younger people are seeing them um both men and women are watching 
and you want to have something that's believable that it sort of adds to the story and if you have a sex scene that's not done very well or just feels a bit naff or there's not really a place for it and it, it does take away from the story and it's sort of not necessary and then adds to the narrative of unrealistic expectations which I think bad sex scenes have a part to play in that I think pornography has a much larger part to play in that but definitely um, within sex scenes and then also teaching people what is respectful and not and I think sex education normal people uh, Bridgerton did that now Bridgerton to quickly go on a tangent the virginity scene there and there was a normal people virginity scene um I think that's the first time I've ever heard it referenced by the guy you know and he says to her like this is going to hurt I think the other key thing on both of those is that there is a clear message of do you want me to stop yes no do you want to do this? Yes, no. Like there is conversation, oh, yeah, communication, sure. which again is not normally seen. And and no, also in a sex scene, it just happens, doesn't it? It just starts, and there's just an assumption that it's great for both people. Which then translates into what that actually happens in people's lives. And then there's people have not been clear, and communication is thought of as something that's like not very sexy. But mm-hmm. if you actively both say that and it doesn't have to be like clunky it just makes it so much more better because then you're like both very in the same space and you're both like knowing that it's not just one person who wants to and the other person doesn't really want to and they're like going along with it mm-hmm. like it just clears all of that up um mm-hmm. the other thing that normal people did so well is that they have a contraception mention which again doesn't generally you don't see that it's like no. a conversation it's like oh yeah we'll just go for this no, never see it. Again, this unrealistic sheets that I'm sorry, obsessed with the sheets thing because I just, I think it's so ridiculous. Pre the sheet scene, you have a scene where there's no contraception mentioned, uh, no condoms, no pills, no nothing. And suddenly as well, the character, if it's a soap opera or a film, can just accidentally get pregnant. And there's no explanation as well as to why she accidentally got pregnant. So the implication is either she didn't have contraception at all or I don't know there's a gray area there but but characters tend to get pregnant by mistake so often but there's also no explanation of why yeah yeah totally um and I think that just to come back to what you were saying about adding to the story I think that is where the importance of sex scene lies for me because people people all have sex in different ways, right? We have a lot to learn from that character that we're being privileged to see that very intimate part of their lives. That can tell you a lot about that character and about that story. And if they're all just, there aren't any, there isn't enough room or isn't a space to have a discussion and a conversation to develop those scenes to the point that they need to be developed, then it just ends up being like this thing that they just have to put in that doesn't really add it to it. And then as you were saying, Mm -hmm. absolutely unrealistic or damaging expectations that especially young people have, especially if they've never had sex before. Like if you can't, mm. if you imagine the, the amount of sex that you watch as like, just use me and you as an example, we watched pretty much the entirety of Sex in the City long before we'd ever had sex. I, was at- I think one of the worst sex scenes, which is, is actually very sexy at the same time as being like so unrealistic is in mm. atonement. And this has got a lot of bad press. Yes. The butt with against the wall. The library green dress scene where... Green dress, yeah. One minute they're kissing and the next minute they're having sex on the 
on the bookcase and it's like whoa we went from zero to 100 very quickly there and then she walks in and she's like splayed against the that is ridiculous um and I wonder you know in the Bridgerton sex scene in the library I wonder if they're referencing the ridiculousness of atonement in that scene because it's quite similar and then there's the whole like worry that people are going to walk in and then she's like it doesn't matter which is what he's already said to her I thought that was maybe um, a bit of a tongue-in-cheek atonement Mm. thing what did you think of the Bridgerton um sex scenes because there were a a hell of a lot of them there's like one episode where it's that's it it's just all sex yeah (laughs) and did you hear that reggae jean page's i think aunt went out to make a cup of tea at that point and she came back and they were still having sex (laughs) yeah yeah so funny um I thought that Bridgerton did a really really good job and I've 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 actually been re-watching it I'm almost at the end so I've been watching it again with the intimacy coordinator thing in mind and also knowing who Lady Whistledown is which is quite interesting it's so obvious when you re-watch it uh and I would say that again going back to that characterization point the sex scenes are very different in tone depending on who is in them the whole class thing between sienna and anthony is explored in those sex scenes as well like it's very obvious that this is she's Mm -hmm. got a kind of prostitute angle to it but then they also really like each other i don't know if they're in love with each other it's kind of infatuation that it's an addictive Mm -hmm. sort of sense that you get from watching those which is completely different to daphne and simon where you have these very interesting power dynamics. He has been the one to essentially tell her more about sex than anybody has, including her mom. And then he's using that knowledge to actually make it much better and much less scary for her. And then also ends up using it to manipulate her into uh, kind of withholding information, which is basically like how you get pregnant. So he keeps on pulling But she manipulates him. If we put it the other way around, and if a woman got pregnant without knowing because her partner had said he was going to use a condom and then didn't, for example, I think we'd be like, oh, that's terrible. Whereas in this situation, she is manipulating him so that she can get pregnant, even though he's made it very clear that he doesn't want to. Yeah. And I think what's interesting about that scene is that lots of people have called it out online as sexual assault or even rape. Um, by the definition of rape that is not rape but it could be seen as sexual assault because of the whole consent issue that he has consented to sex with her but he has not consented to sex and like ejaculation I guess um, because he does not want to have children but I think that it's so interesting that you highlight that communication point because with both normal people and with Bridgerton what it always comes down to with all of the drama is that the two characters did not communicate with each other and had they communicated in a different way it would have been very different I think that Simon is overestimating how much she knows about sex and he I think that there's a just such an issue with this whole and it's so difficult to put yourself in either of them's shoes because the idea that you w- honestly wouldn't know how pregnancy happens is such a weird power balance and dynamic to happen. It makes the show so good because it is very nuanced and layered and there are there is no one person who is at fault here. And that's what makes it so complicated and, and interesting to think about and discuss. Mm. And I also, 
really, I listened to an interview with Ito O'Brien, who was the coordinator for sex coordinator for non people and sex education. And she, they asked, the interviewer asked her, like, does, does a male, um, well, do, do the actors get worried they're going to get aroused in real life? And she said, yes, particularly the male um, ones, because what we do in that situation is obviously it's not okay to have an erection in the workplace. And I was like, oh, yes. It's not okay to have an erection in the workplace. And even if you're simulating a sex scene, you still can't, it's still, that's still the workplace. Um, and so if you have an erection, <laughs> you can't really do that. And so she kind of takes you through the process of what happens if that were the case and how they can hide it or stop or they have to take a moment and they have a code word and all this stuff. And um, what did they do? Before? I just want to know what they did before having someone who was assigned to that. Did someone just have an erect? Like they just kept the erect? I, I know. know. <laughs> I think there's a lot of questions of what happened before. I think just a huge amount of awkwardness, embarrassment, shame, and then people getting to a point that they weren't comfortable with and not knowing how to say that they weren't comfortable with it. Yeah, I think just wanted to finish with a quote from Ito O'Brien, which says that we are inviting the no. I think that really sums up what the development of sex scenes is all about and intimacy coordinators. And I hope that they are made compulsory as HBO have done already for all future um, productions. Yeah. And, and, to use it, and to use it as an example in real life. Thank you for listening to this month's episode. You can find us as always on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Um, I'm working on a very fun, exciting, creative challenge to come up and there will be details of that. It's happening in March and there will be details of that on our Instagram. So if you are interested in helping raise some money for some charities and get a bit creative and reflective, then do have a look at that. It's at figure podcast on Instagram.